Hi, this is Sean Benson from Harvest Church in Warrensburg, Missouri. I want to thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. For more resources, log on to harvestwarrensburg.com. Well, if you didn't know, we are doing a core values series. Anybody? Did anybody know that? Do you know we're doing a core values series? I see a few heads shaking, so I must be doing something right. Brandy's been in Africa. She still knows that's what we've been doing. So I, nobody else has any kind of an excuse. <laughs> we've been... We've been majoring on the Father heart of God. There's much that we could say about that topic, about that core value. You know, and, and again, we, we necessarily place such emphasis on that core value because, it, it, honestly, the right view of God has to become the lenses that we use to interpret everything else in life. And if we have the wrong view of God, we will make wrong conclusions about so many things that come against us, the way that people interact with us, the way that church leaders or leaders treat us or you know, whatever it is in our lives. We will misinterpret it if we don't have a right view of God. It's absolutely critical that we know him in the way that he is expressing himself. And interestingly, as we've, as we've learned, God, in all of his infinite wisdom and in all of his perfection, that he chose to reveal himself to us as a father. And, and while we know that, you know, well, we, I'll just say it this way. Uh, we know what a bad one looks like, don't we? Anybody know what a bad father looks like? Yeah? We've, if we haven't personally experienced it on, on some level, we've, we've seen it. We understand what that looks like. But you know what? We also, and, and, and I would say, and we're wired by God to also identify what a good one looks like. Anybody know what a good one looks like? No, make no, there's like, there are no excuses. Like, I don't care, you know, how you were. I don't care how you were raised. I don't care what your father looks like. We know what a good father is. Like, we have that. We, 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 we're wired with it. I mean, God literally says he writes his law upon our hearts. Like, we know what goodness and mercy looks like. Like, we know what a good father looks like. And God, in his infinite wisdom, he chose to reveal himself to us as a father so that absolutely every person on the planet forever will be able to identify and relate to him within this context. This thing is how we are to relate to him forever. He is our father. That's supposed to mean something to us. He put himself in a box, a box that we could understand. Is God infinitely more than that? You better believe it. But this is how he chose to reveal himself to us. This is the box that he put himself in so that we could understand and know how to relate to him. You know, but God didn't just reveal himself as a father. He also revealed us as sons and daughters. We need to come into a place where we understand how significant that is. He's revealed us as sons and daughters. I got a couple of scriptures for you. You know, Jesus was, was preaching to a crowd, and his, his mom and his, his brothers came up. By the way, did you know that the, his family thought he was crazy? That's why you have to read your Bible. <laughs> they thought Jesus was nuts. You know, so the next time you step out in God's will and your family and people persecute you and they say, you're crazy, that's nuts. Just know that Jesus also experienced the very same thing. They thought he was straight nuts. In this case, they, they, his, his brothers and, and his mother, they came up, they were requesting some time with him, and the crowd came up and said, hey, Jesus, your mom's here. You know, this is how Jesus responded. This is Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 48. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards the disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. And this is the important part, 50. He says, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. 
Well, that's all of us, right? And then New Testament, we find a num- like numerous different references. One of my favorite to this concept of family, the, uh, one of my favorites is actually out of Romans chapter 8. We've hit on it before. I want to just touch on it briefly again as we get started here. It says, uh, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Uh, can you remember our verse, I think from last week or at least a couple of weeks ago? No, it was last week, right? That uh, perfect love has cast out Fear. Perfect love is cast out fear because fear has to do with punishment or torment, I heard someone say, depending on your translation. Punishment is what it means. Right? Now, we're seeing that same theme actually illustrated here as he begins to present, again, this concept of family. Right? He's saying, perfect love is cast out fear. If I'm a slave, I'm doing what I'm told because I have fear of punishment. You don't do what, you're gonna, you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to beat you, and then you're going to do what I tell you. That's the, that's the life of a slave. But the life of a son is actually posed in contrast to that. A son doesn't do what he's told out of fear. A son does what he's told because he loves and respects and honors the father. See, I'm not, I don't have fear of punishment in my father-son relationship. That's not why I do what I do. You know, I have love and respect and honor for him. That's why I do what I do. You know, and, and that's the kind of tone that we want to set in our homes. I don't want my children to not sneak out at night because they have fear of what dad might do to them. I want my children not to sneak out at night because they honor and respect me because that's the tone that I've created in my house. Can you see there's a big difference between the two? See, we're seeing that theme again, even woven inherently into Romans chapter 8. We continue, or I'll just read it again. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's Daddy God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are what? We are children of God. And if children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's a phenomenal idea. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be also glorified with him. How many of you know this makes us family? (laughs) This makes us family. That's, that's why in the body of Christ you often hear somebody saying, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. Oh, sister Susan, she's just so sweet. Like, where do we come up with that kind of language? It's right here. If, if I'm a son, if I'm a son, and you're a son and you're a daughter, like, we're, we're siblings based on what this said. We've been adopted, grafted back into the household of God. We have the same father. By the way, we've received a transfusion as well. So it's his blood and his DNA that I've been reestablished with. Right? I have a new father. I have new blood coursing through my veins. A brand new destiny, brand new purpose. I've been born again. I'm a new creation. But that makes us siblings. That makes us family. Family happens to be the very next core value that we have here at Harvest. The family of God. We are the family of God. That statement isn't something we just say. It has implications. We're going to talk about that just a little bit today. Now, you might stop me and go, wait a second. I thought we were going to get into the discipline, like church discipline. Some of you were hooting and hollering like, yes, I want to hear. See, you guys were sharpening your axes already. All right, sharpen that thing. I want to get it. I want to hear what God has to say about this. So why am I getting into family? I'm getting into family now. Not only is it our second core value, but it's in the context of family that church discipline actually is is implemented. (laughs) And obviously we'll talk more about that happens in the context of family. And I'll add this. I'll say, and that's why it's so grievous to me and many others, at least in our tribe, 
that we have so many alleged ministers in the body of Christ who have made it their single ministry and mission purpose to try to discredit other ministers in the body of Christ worldwide who they have no relationship with. See, all discipline was always meant to happen within the confines of relationship, within the confines of family. It it wasn't meant to happen in a sense in which, I don't know you, you were a thousand miles from me, but I heard you say something on the internet, and now I'm going to make it my goal to destroy you and your ministry. That's why it's so grievous, because it's out of God's order. Discipline, or what I, in some cases, I think some of that's just straight punishment, but discipline was always meant to happen within the confines of, of relationship and family. One of the reasons for that is because it has maximum impact. Think about that. If you had an absolute stranger come up to you and say, boy, you've sucked it up at this and you're a big tool bag. You know, like, would you receive that more from a stranger or from your best friend? The stranger, I'm like, forget you, man, like whatever. But my best friend comes up and says, bro, that was a tool bag thing to do. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, wait, wait, what? Like, talk to me now. Why? Because we have relational equity. See, I I put more trust in this individual because I've developed a relationship with them. Thus, I'm more inclined to actually hear what they have to say and to allow what they're saying to leaven my heart and to bring bring forth a different way of thinking and different actions, different behavior. Right? It was meant to happen in the context of family. Again, one of the reasons is because there's relational equity there because it actually bears a significantly larger amount of fruit. Does that make sense? I trust somebody who I know more than I trust a stranger. I want you to think about the context of Hebrews chapter 12 that we introduced last week. You know, Hebrews, the, the primary passage that we look to to discern whether God is a, a punisher or whether he's a disciplinarian, you know, the, the discipline of God. The discipline of God in that chapter is surrounded by the language of family. Father God disciplines you and I, us, we, me, you and me, yeah, that's it, you and me, as sons and daughters, it says. See, he's, he's putting context immediately into that familial dynamic. Like, that's the way that Jesus, that's the way that God designed it, even, even as it as unfolds in, in Hebrews chapter 12. We see that. It's always an intimacy and a relationship. You might say, what about the confrontational verses that we have? Listen, there, there are confrontational verses when it comes to sin in the Scriptures, Right? Like there, there are, you can't deny it. When you look through the New Testament, there are verses that look like we're, we're called and admonished to be confrontational when it comes to seeing a brother or a sister in sin. But let me preface anything that we're about to say with this one point. If you're more concerned about confronting or rebuking people who are in sin than you are about walking with them on a journey out of their sin, the problem actually is not the sinner, it's you. You need a heart check. If you're more interested in rebuking than you are bearing with one, then you need a heart check. The problem lies more with you than it does the one with the alleged sin. Is this making sense this morning? Good. We're not called to be a voice of negativity and rebuke. We're called to lay down our lives in service to one another. Take a look at this scripture. We've got a couple. I'm going to just explain this a little bit further. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 3, says, this is one of those confrontational scriptures. It says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
Uh, and if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you, did I say that right? If he, if he, if, if he sins against you seven times a day, that's a lot. That's a lot. And returns to you seven times saying, I repent. He says, forgive him. Now, understand, we just prefaced that, 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 that to the discipline of God or the, the rebuke of God or that of our peers comes in the intimacy of relationships, right? So everything we've said, we've just prefaced with that. Right? I, I want to submit to you that that's the same thing that we're reading here. It says, be on your guard if your brother sins against you. So the first thing that we learn is that we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. My responsibility is actually to the saved ones. It's not saying go to the world and chastise and rebuke them. They're, you know, they're filthy sinners. It's not to say there's not a responsibility out there, but it looks a little bit differently. What we're talking about here are brothers and sisters in Christ. That rebuke your brother and sister in Christ. But I would suggest to you that the implication of the, the word even brother being used in this context, it's implying actual relationship and not just a brother in Christ from another tribe across the See, right? It's talking about somebody who you actually have connection with. And I would say that's further supported by the rest of the context of what we see here. If you see a brother who's in sin, rebuke them. But then it says, and if that guy seven times a day, he's a big turd and keeps coming back and just ruining your life, you just continue to forgive. What's he saying? He's saying that you actually have relationship, ongoing relationships, such that the individual even has access enough to your life to be such a pain in the butt. That's what's. It's not talking about a stranger anymore, is it? If you see a brother, I would, again, I'm just going to reiterate, I would suggest it's implying relationship there, and, and not just the sense in which we are brothers and sisters in Christ, though that first, secondarily relationship, actual bond of unity, relationship, friendship that's happening. And again, that's, that's, that's further perpetuated in the context by the sense in which that person's around you enough to be that offensive. It's the context of relationships. So even this first confrontational verse that we come to is couched in this context of relationship, of family. I want you to think about the local church for just a second. Consider not this expression, though we are not far off, if at all, but the original expression. Do you remember what they did? Yeah, of course, they used to meet in the temple. They used to meet in Solomon's portico. You could fit 300,000 people in there. They would pack it out and have a, have a party. I think it was weekly they would do the apostles. They would bring them in for the conference. Can you imagine? They're like, yeah, we're bringing in Apostle Paul this week. How? Let's do this. It's going to be amazing. Peter's just going to walk by. Anybody who needs healing, he's just going to be walking by. See that shadow on the floor? Just get yourself in there. Right? It would be amazing. So they got to experience that. I would say that it was the first megachurch. Oh, why are we so angry with megachurches? Because it's in the Bible. Just so you know. It was the first megachurch. But they also met, it says, house to house. They broke bread together. They fellowshiped. They, they continued in this level of communion. Now, have any of you ever been a part of a life group, a small group, a house church, anything like that? Like the first thing that you're going to understand is that it's a limited context. You can't fit a thousand people in anyone's house that I know. You fit a thousand people in anybody's house? Because we're going to move the church there. If, if you raise your hand, be very careful right now how you answer. Right? Like, so uh, the house church context, house to house context is, is limited. You're going to have a handful of people, I, I would suggest maybe 20 or less in that kind of context. That means that I know absolutely everybody who comes through the front door. 
And everybody who's there knows everybody who comes through the front door. We all know one another. It's a familial atmosphere. It's an environment where we are living life together in intimate fellowship. You have to understand, like, the New Testament was written to this culture, to this context. It was written to a house church environment where everybody knew everybody intimately. I know what you're doing even in the private space because that's, we're meeting intimately like that. We're in a small community and we've pared it down even smaller in my house as we meet together to give praise and honor to God. So any command that we find in the scripture that talks about confronting another believer or rebuking them or anything like that, you need to understand that it's being issued in this kind of a context. What kind of a context? A familial context. The context where everybody, sometimes we want to go where everybody knows our name. Go back to the book of Acts. And that's what they had. I don't know. I can't rhyme, but it was was close. I still need applause for that. It was really good. Thank you, thank you. It's, pretty, it's too bad I had to fish it, fish it out of you. I felt it was better than that, but you know, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, so, so anything that we find, again, in the New Testament that, that looks like this confrontational command, again, you need to understand it's being issued within this context, within the context of I know you, you know me, we know each other well. We go to the same fishing boat. We, we are, we're working together day in and day out. We live in the same community. We go to the same marketplace. We worship God together in the same small, intimate environment. It is familial. It is family-oriented, relational in nature. We cannot excuse that kind of context. The other thing that we get out of a relational dynamic is the sense of commitment. When you know someone and you love them, you are naturally inspired to walk with them. Like if I don't know you and you come and you're like, hey, look at the suitcase of my life and you open it up and I'm like, wow, there is a lot of crazy happening in your suitcase. Shut that thing up. Let's put a padlock on it. You're going to be like, I know a guy who can help you. Right? You're going to be like diakonos, beep, boop, beep, boop, boop. Yeah, I know it costs money, but listen, bro, like... That guy out there, he can help you. But when it's someone who you love and you're doing life with, you know, who you've welcomed into communion and relationship with, and you find out that they're hurting and they're struggling in some way. Now, love compels you to walk with them, doesn't it? Like, all of a sudden, you have skin in the game. All of a sudden, like, you, like you, you don't want to see this person abandoned because you love them. You're in relationship with them. You're, you're in communion with them, and you are committed naturally. There's grace. There's empowerment in your life because of this relationship that naturally it comes out of you in your commitment to their success and ultimately to their well-being, and it causes you to walk with them until they can walk out of their issues. See, this was God's design. Like, it, it works in, in community, we were meant to be in relationship with one another. And again, I want to reiterate this because it's, a, just, it's so important for us to hear this. The, the confrontational scriptures were meant to outwork in this context. The context where I know Charles intimately because he's invested in my life and I've invested in him. And because of that intimacy, I'm able to speak into his life. And because of that intimacy, he's able to receive it from me and I from him. Because we're walking together in Christ 
because we both have the same vision, the same goals, and that's to be like Jesus. And I'm willing to hear what he has to say. I'm willing to hear how he's receiving me. Like, oh, you're really scary. Like, oh, okay. I don't want to be scary, so talk to me about that. A stranger tells me I'm scary. I'll tell him to take a hike. You're scary. Maybe I'm supposed to be scary. What, you know, maybe you're just scared. I don't just, you know. But Charles tells me that. See, it's meant to work out in this environment. That's discipline. Like Charles coming alongside of me as a friend speaking into my life, that's discipline from Father God. How many of you know sometimes he actually speaks through people, right? So discipline then can come through people. It's meant to come through those who are yoked together in relationship with so that it has maximum impact and maximum fruit in our life. Again, we're not called to just be the fountain of rebuke for everything that we see that's not according to the way that we think it ought to be. Man, even as your shepherd, do you know how many conversations I let go when I'm talking with somebody and they say something that's not good theology? I, I don't jump into the ring and fight every battle that I see. <laughs> there's a time and there's a place for that. There's a place for relationship. There's a place where I can speak into your life. Sometimes I will at the leading of Holy Spirit. That's the other dynamic, by the way. Everything we do as a son and daughter, we do, see again, in relationship with family. Everything I do as a son and a daughter, I do it under the unction of the Spirit of God. By His moving, as it's confirmed in the Word of God, as, as it challenges my behavior, my actions. You understand? Still happening, unfolding in the family dynamic. <clears throat> That really brings us up to Galatians chapter 6. By the way, if you were taking notes, and of course we've got that available on our app, if you like that. Um, how many of you actually, I know it's kind of a new concept, how many of you are using that? Anybody? Because it takes me time to do it. For those four people, it's worth it. It's worth it. <laughs> but anyway, so it's, it's there and available to you. All these scriptures are listed in your app for you. But, but, that, but that brings us up to Galatians chapter 6. For those of you who are taking notes, uh, make a note that Colossians chapter 3 is the direct parallel for that. Colossians chapter 3 and Galatians 6. What I love about that is that the Apostle Paul is telling multiple churches the exact same thing. <laughs> and it continues to strengthen the argument. Uh, listen to this. this. This is how God is actually expecting church discipline to unfold. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, what's he talking about? He's talking about somebody sinning in the church. Even if anyone is caught in, trust, in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore, therefore, excuse me, thereby fulfill the love of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself." Uh, you know, you notice it doesn't say rebuke such a one. If you find somebody and said rebuke them, rebuke such a one. And, and even in the scriptures that it does say rebuke them, I, I want you to understand the aim as it's listed here in Galatians 6 is always to restore such a one. That's the first thing you need to understand. If, if, you're, if you're out there right now like, and you, you think that your job is just to rebuke people who are in sin... Like, and and your, your heart isn't to see them restored, then I would ask you to stop that ministry. I, I would say you're being moved by the wrong spirit. Right? Your aim, your desire, your heart's motivation in partnership with Holy Spirit has to always be to restore such a one. You actually have to have a burden for them or else keep your mouth shut because somebody else in their sphere has a burden for them and they're praying for that person and I don't want you to ruin it. 
right? Restore such a one. I, I, I just love that. How many of you know God is not a punisher? We've talked about it several weeks. God is not a punisher. By, by nature, he's actually a restorer. Punishment brings separation. <laughs> a restorationist actually makes me better than he found me in the beginning. <laughs> Think about that for a second. You know, when, when Adam, let me just throw this out there, it's a rabbit trail, but I feel like it's important for you to hear it. When Adam was born, he didn't have Holy Spirit on the inside of him. But when Jesus redeemed me, he released Holy Spirit to live with me, and I'll forever be yoked with him, never to be separated. No one can, no one can steal me from his hand, right? I got an upgrade after I was a sinful piece of dirt. See, Jesus as a restorationist, God, Father God as a restorationist, always makes it better. <laughs> he works all things for good and for glory. Come on, give me an amen to that. Amen. you got to hear that today. That's so good. You can't screw it up beyond his ability to make it better. Man, I thought I blew this whole thing up. <laughs> you did. Now relent and repent <laughs> and yield to him and he'll make it better because he uses everything even the trash that I give him. Come on. It's so good. You know, notice the next part of this. It says, and if anyone found on the trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one. So restoration is our first aim. How are we to do that? We are to do that in a spirit of gentleness. But where do you remember us talking about gentleness? You know, a few weeks ago, we rolled it out as the fruit of the spirit. The title of that sermon was, He is the fruit, right? Gentleness is one of them. So what we're talking about is, number one, God Father God is gentle. It's a fruit of what manifests when he's around. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when I'm in communion with Holy Spirit. I too am gentle. So this is a manifestation of the character of God in our midst. And so what it's saying is if God's like this, then you have to be like this. You were made in his image and you're being sharpened back into that perfection. Right? If God is gentle, you have to be gentle. And so I want to submit to you that if you see somebody who is going after sin and they're not doing it in a way that's gentle, you have reason to question what spirit they're of. You have reason to question whether they're actually being led by Holy Spirit or whether they're just being led by their own soul. The Old Testament, as it speaks to prophets, has a few things to say about that. Hmm. I just baptized my own foot. That foot's getting saved. Bless God. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little bit out of my sorts here. Take a second and get back on track. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Gentleness. The next thing here, listen to this. He says, and each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So... As we are engaging in this process of church discipline, as we're engaging in this process of, of, of rebuking our brother, our sister, humility is a necessary part of the process. You see that? He says, he says listen, like there's no room in the body of Christ for self-righteousness. You, you have every bit of, of, of as much likelihood to fall into sin as the person who you're now engaging with. 
Listen, I bring nothing to the table. My righteousness apart from Christ is of filthy rags. Like I have nothing apart from what he gave me. All good things come from God. Everything that I have, I've received from him. I've been bought with a price. I'm not my own. I'm just stewarding it all. I have nothing. It's all his. I have his righteousness. I am the righteousness of Christ Jesus because he imputed it to me. It was him. It was everything that he did. It's not because of my works. I couldn't do anything about it. I don't bring much to the table. He brings it all. And I'm very, very aware that if circumstances were exactly so, if things were just right and the enemy was doing what he does and, and my, my life circumstances, my relationships, if they just bowed a little bit and then you catch me in this season where I'm feeling a little bit depressed and then you throw that temptation my way, I'm very aware that I, just like others, could fall in that trap. Right? Humility has to be a part of this situation because humility uh, refutes this self-righteous attitude. It, it allows us to actually come alongside with genuine compassion, with the fear of God. Like, Listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not here judging you, brother. <laughs> I'm just here coming alongside because I, I have the fear of God over my own life, knowing that what's happening in yours could very well happen in mine, and, <laughs> and I sow what I reap. So right now, I'm sowing to you right now the comfort and the encouragement that you need so that if and when I were to fall and do something stupid, I could receive the same comfort and the encouragement that I'm now sowing, right? I am very aware in humility that I could be the one on the receiving side of this deal. You know what it says of Jesus? Did Jesus sin? No, Jesus didn't sin. Jesus was perfect. That's the whole reason he was able to, to, to be my sacrifice, to be, you know, to, to be sacrificed in my stead was because he was sinless. But of Jesus, it says, he was tempted in all ways just as we are. And it says the result of that is that he now as our high priest is sympathetic to our weaknesses. Even perfect Jesus is not coming to us in arrogance saying, well, I did it. What's wrong with you? I've given you everything you need for life and godliness, you turd. It's not, that's not Jesus. It says Jesus is sympathetic to our weaknesses. Even Jesus isn't coming in pride and arrogance. He's still coming in humility and he's the only one. Who was sinless, right? Yeah, Paul turns it right around on us. Verse three says the same. If anyone thinks of himself, if you think that you're something when you're nothing, you you deceive yourself. I'll tell you what I think of myself. I think I am utterly dependent upon Him, and if it wasn't for Him, I'd be in real trouble. That's what I think, and I think that sometimes people forget who they are and they get themselves into some real trouble. And I'm to come alongside them with gentleness, with aim to restore such a one. Not to bring punishment, not to bring pain, not to rebuke them, to cut them off, but to restore such a one, to reconcile them back to the Father, to remind them who they are before the Lord. Now it says that we're supposed to bear the burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We have to be careful because Jesus is actually the burden bearer, uh, not us. So what it's suggesting is I'm not taking somebody's burden and heaping it upon my own shoulders and being battened down by someone else's life, pain, and struggles. That's not what it means. It's more like I take your, remember we talked about the suitcase that had all the cray-cray in there? Like I'm taking your crazy suitcase and I'm handing it up to Jesus. That's how I bear your burdens, right? So what does that look like practically? It means I'm praying for you. 
Man, I, I am in your corner. I, I am for you. I'm committed to relationship with you. I'm encouraging you. I'm sending resources your way. Hey, I stumbled upon this resource in the community that does this thing. I think it could be helpful to you. I'm bringing accountability. Hey, how are you doing with that issue, Bill? You know, how are you doing with that? Oh, you struggle. Okay, well, uh, I'm going to come alongside of you in genuine relationship right? Like that's what it looks like to bear one another's burdens. But then it defines for us, it says to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what's the law of Christ? Anybody know? To love. To love. So it's now defining for me what love looks like. Do you see that? So I I can't apply my own version of what love looks like to the process of church discipline. It defines it for me. Well, what's the definition? It's coming with, with sympathy as we saw in Christ. It's coming with gentleness, being led by the Holy Spirit with the aim to restore somebody. It's coming in patience. It's it's the, the sense in which it's calling me to bear the burden of this other person, which by the way is all consistent with the definition we find in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. If you get a little bit further down the road, it says love bears all things. Oh, wow. It's defining for us 1 Corinthians 13 all over again. We can't bring our own definition of love to the table. This is what it looks like to bear with one another. Now, let me ask you this. Does it sound like that's something that happens overnight? No, I don't know how it's so long, but we're going to keep going. I don't care this morning. It didn't feel like it should be 1035, but sorry, not sorry. We're doing this. Like, does it, does it seem like what we just described as love and discipline with someone who we find in a trespass, does it seem like it's something that happens overnight? I, I bared with you, brother, while I slept eight hours last night. Now this morning, I'm calling you to account. You got that crap knocked off or what are we doing here? No, then I'm done with you. No, right? It's going to take time. He's talking about like bearing someone's burden with it. It's coming alongside of them. There's a process because repentance is actually changing our mind and the changing of the way that we think results in the change of behavior. We don't renew our mind overnight. We can step into discipline. We can step into honor of the Lord, but we have to change the way we think if we want to get different results. Come on in, second service. You'll just get it twice. It's all good. It takes time. This is not a one and done. This isn't something that happens overnight or quickly. It's a process, and we have the grace to walk this process because we are in family relationship. We have to be in family relationship. We have to be connected with people like Charles who can speak into our life, who we actually trust in some ways more than we trust ourselves. How many of you know you have blind spots? Like, I can't see stuff on my back. Like, I would submit that some of you probably haven't even cleaned a certain spot on your back in 20 years. You're like, I don't even, how do you even get to it? Like, how do you reach that spot? I don't know. <laughs> you, you can't touch it, see it, nothing. Like, you have no idea. There's some serious stuff happening with that mole back there, right? You just don't know. You just need someone to come alongside and go, whoa, bro, you're not Asian. Pluck that stuff. That's way funnier. You just, you just were, you know, you just didn't know what to do with it. But it was hilarious. I guarantee you. We gotta have people who are looking. We, we gotta have people who we trust to say, yeah, like you, there's some dirt back there. You want what? I, I can't, I can't even see it. 
people who we trust more than we trust ourselves to speak into it and go, man, if that's how people are receiving me, I don't want people to receive me like that. Like, like oh, you, you think I don't listen to you when we're talking? I've been, listen, I've been listening to you. It doesn't matter whether I think I'm doing it or not. You don't think so, so now I get to change. That's love, guys. Love is I have a responsibility to change my behavior, not to change yours and our relationships. Right? And when we both walk like that together, man, we are really getting sharped into the image of Jesus. Are we doing okay? We're, we're landing, man. We are seriously landing the plane. We are doing it. Love is defined for us. Gentleness, kindness, humility, sympathy, a commitment to the process. I want to leave you with this, well, a couple of things here. I want you to notice, we've been talking about church discipline. Uh, I find it also strange that nowhere in any of the passages thus far that we've read does it say, uh, get your pastor involved in all this stuff. Oh, you see somebody in sin? Get your pastor to go and rebuke them. Just call your pastor, set a meeting with them, make, they, make them do it. You know, you know who it actually says is supposed to do it? You guys. Yeah, you guys are supposed to do it. Now we can talk about Matthew 18, which, by the way, is inherently personal and non, is not corporate, by the way, at all. We use it for the pattern for corporate discipline and, uh, and those sorts of procedures, which we may or may not even cover. Actually, I've already got a message on it. Just go look it up in the archives. You know, but it's actually personal. Even there, it says, if your brother sins against you, you go to him in private. Still one-on-one, guys. You know, how many of you know, your pastor is not supposed to be the one to do this. You are. Where does, the, where does church discipline primarily have? What's Pastor Sean doing about this stuff? I've heard that over the last year. What's Pastor Sean doing about this sin that's happening in his church? What are you doing about it? I mean, I know what I'm doing. What are you doing? See, it doesn't say call your pastor and make him do it all. It says for you to be yoked in together with relationship with people who you genuinely love enough to talk to them about their blind spots, who you love enough not to just rebuke and, and get out a dodge, but who you love enough to, to bear their burdens, to, to walk with them into righteousness and out of their sin issue. The responsibility is actually all of ours, not mine. Responsibility is to the body of Christ. That's a big point. That's a big point. Now, listen, I want to read directly out of our summary. <laughs> These are a couple of lines directly out of the summary. We've got like a summary report on all of our core values here. This is the core value of family. Just a couple of lines. It says this it says, In covenant relationships, we purposely grow our capacity to trust and be trusted as we empower and confront one another in order to live out who we truly are. What does that mean? It means we're calling people into their greater purpose before the Lord. God has more than this for you. And I'm committed to relationship with you until we both realize that. The next thing is this, listen to this. We are loyal, which is demonstrated most radically when people fail. We do not punish and abandon those who fail, to save face or to show that we hate sin, but instead we are committed to helping them be restored. Straight from our core value handbook. Harvest, this is who we are. As long as I'm here, this is who we're going to be. I hope it's who you want to be. God's not a punisher. He's a restorer. And that takes time and intentionality and relationship. 
I'm willing to walk that journey, are you? Jesus, we submit our lives to you, and we ask that you would bring those who are feeling lonely by our own design or uh, just whatever, uh, just maybe we're, some are introverts, they don't even know how to do it. Uh, we're independent people. We are busy about so many things. I'm asking Jesus that you would help us to walk into covenant relationships. That's what your word says. You have covenant relationships for us, the kind of people who can say, bro, check out that mole, there's something wrong with that thing. Like, we want those people in our lives. We need those people in our lives. And more than just pointing out that I got a hairy mole, pointing, like, wanting to live life with us, wanting to do vacation with us, wanting to, like, the kind of people who could admonish our children and we're like, yeah, that's right. You want some more of that? What he said. Like, you're actually okay with them stepping in at that level. Those kinds of people we can be yoked with, we're asking for it, Jesus. We're asking for it in our lives. Would you send that to every lonely person to every introvert, to every person who doesn't know how to cultivate that, who doesn't know how to get that. Lifelong people who are committed to the long haul with them in their lives. Committed to relationships now and as long as you'll take them. We ask for it this morning. And we ask also, Jesus, that you would reorient our thinking. (laughs) Take all that punishment stuff out of us. Help us to be the kind of people who are committed to the process of restoration and gentleness in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to contact us or would like more information about our church or additional podcasts or resources, please visit us online at harvestwarrensburg.com. We hope to see you soon.